We're going to be in John chapter 4, and we are going to pick it up right here in verse 1. As you turn in there, let me say that this uh, is a little bit like the passage that we saw a couple of weeks ago with Nicodemus insofar as we get to eavesdrop on a conversation that they were having. And let me also say this, this is a uh, significant passage. It runs throughout the entirety, basically, of chapter 4, but we're only going to look at the first 15 verses of it, and that's going to be plenty. Four points, they are not all the same length, so be prepared. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although John himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, this is a reference, very briefly, to what we looked at last week, which, in case you missed it, is available online. Big exchange there from John the Baptist talking about Jesus and his ministry. But verse 4 is where it really kicks off, and it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. If you are one who writes in your Bible, circle that phrase, had to pass, because here's what's going on. Most people, (coughs) if they wanted to take the usual route from Judea to Galilee, they would just go through Samaria. But really devout uh, Jews would not. They would seek to uh, avoid the defilement and would bypass Samaria and opt for a longer route that involved crossing the Jordan and traveling on the east side. But Jesus (coughs) purposely goes through Samaria. In fact, the Greek that is used here indicates divine necessity. Scholar Raymond Brown (coughs) puts it like this. He says, this expression of necessity means that God's will or plan is involved. And so that gives us our first principle right here off the bat, and that is that Jesus never does anything by accident. You say that with me? Jesus never does anything by accident. (coughs) This is true throughout his life and ministry. Think about the woman with the issue of blood. He could have been anywhere, but he was right there with her. You think about how he waited until Lazarus had died completely before he headed over there and brought him back to life. You think about how he told all those people, hey, I healed you, but don't tell anybody. Just keep a lid on it. Even though he knew that they weren't going to do it, <coughs> he was trying to keep his uh, you know, ministry on track and, and go in the direction that he needed to go. Same thing was true in the life of Paul. <coughs> all the places that Paul found himself, none of them were accidental. You think about when he ended up in the jail uh, and he writes the letter uh, back to the Philippians and he's talking about his experience there, what happened? He's chained to the wall, and he's chained to plenty of a rotating cast of guard characters that come through that just so happen to be there that he can share the gospel with every one of them. Jesus never does anything by accident. And you think about what Paul (coughs) teaches, clearly speaking, under the inspiration of Jesus in Acts chapter 17. He says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from any one of us. 
So true in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the life of Paul, the teaching of Paul inspired by Jesus, and truly in our lives. <coughs> Jesus never does anything by accident. So let me give you a little theological maxim that will help you here. As Christians, we don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence. As Christians, we don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence. God has a sovereign plan that he is working out <coughs> all in the accordance of his will. It's what Ephesians 1 tells us. And even though God doesn't cause everything that happens, there's plenty of evil things that happen in the world that God is not responsible for. God can use everything that happens somehow for our good and for his glory in the advancement of his kingdom. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. He had to pass through Samaria. That means that every tear we cry, every trial we endure, every hardship in which we find ourselves, God has a plan and a purpose. He will not waste it. And we would be wise and well served to not do that either. So let me ask you this question. Where do you most need to be encouraged by that particular truth? That's another one of those. Easy preaching, hard living. But every one of us in this room, in this moment, have some use for this truth. Let's be encouraged tonight. Jesus is not operating by accident in your life. Let's listen for what he says. <clears throat> Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this Jacob's well is very significant. It lies at the foot of Mount Gerizim. It was the center of Samaritan worship. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But it is one uh, of the significant sites that we can actually be reasonably sure we know where it is. And the fact that it was at the sixth hour <coughs> is not a throwaway detail. Jesus would have been traveling for a while. He was tired, and he sits, and that gives us our second principle. That Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man, and he got tired <coughs> just like any other traveler. So the doctrine that is in view here is the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Now, thankfully, that is not news to us here at Refuge. We are not surprised by that. We stand with all of historic Christianity. We've always believed that. <coughs> but many in our day overdose one way or the other on these doctrinal poles. Some people talk so much about the humanity of Jesus that they may not even believe that he's God. That's a problem. That's a heresy. At the same time, <coughs> some people can talk so much about the divinity of Jesus that functionally they lose sight of <coughs> the humanity of Jesus, and that is also a problem. Because there's a great quote from one of the early church fathers that really applies to this. Gregory of Nazianzus. That's a mouthful. <coughs> he said that this. That which was not assumed is not healed. And what he means by that 
is that if Jesus had not taken on a physical body, if he had not added (coughs) humanity to his divinity, then we couldn't be saved. Because Jesus had to actively fulfill all of the law of God in our place, (coughs) and then he had to passively die for our sins and our law-breaking, and both of them had to happen for us to be redeemed. And the fact that we see here that Jesus got tired shows us that this is true. He didn't fake tiredness. In just a minute, he doesn't fake thirst. They're real. He got really tired and he got really thirsty. And I think practically for us, clearly the salvation implication is there. But beyond that, that also means that Jesus can fully identify with our human struggles. Writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, <coughs> but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, friends, that's good news for us tonight. Again, we believe it, but we struggle to appropriate it. We struggle to <coughs> remember it. When the going gets tough and we are beaten down. Now, why is that? Well, some of it's our own (coughs) flesh and our own frailty, but some of it is. I believe this is a specific strategic campaign that the enemy runs against us to make us forget it. To obscure it from us. Because you know what one of his greatest strategies is? To get Christians alone. To either get them physically alone so that they make really horrible choices and fall in sin (coughs) or to get them to think that they're alone, sometimes even in a crowd like this. But friends, you need to know you are not alone. You are not alone in this church and you are not alone from your Savior because Jesus got tired. He knows what it's like to be a human, to have human struggles. To be tempted in every way yet without sin. So stay at mom, stay at home, mom, in the middle of the night when you're trying to get that baby to sleep and you are exhausted. We don't know that Jesus rocked any babies, but he knows what it's like to be tired. Man who's working in the afternoon and is just wondering what is the point of all this. Friend Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to carry the burdens of humanity, (coughs) but also the greatest burden of the sins of humanity. So let me ask you this question. Where do you need that truth tonight? To know that Jesus identifies with you and your struggles. But let me give you some good news to put on top of that. Jesus didn't fail where we failed. Jesus succeeded in every single place that we failed. And because of his success, (coughs) we can go to him, we can turn to him and our weakness, and we can see what only God can do through us. So you're not alone. Even if you feel alone, Jesus knows, and you're in a community of people that tries to understand as best we part of our gospel culture. It's important to us.
Verse 7. A woman from Samaria (coughs) came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parenthetical, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So let's work backwards here. John gives us a little insight into what's going on here. (coughs) And her asking this question is very significant. And let me just say, I'm not sure that we in our modern world can fully understand (coughs) just how big of a deal this would have been. There is no exact parallel that we have between what was happening here and what is happening today. The closest we've seen in this country would probably be after the Revolutionary War, the rift (coughs) that existed between those who supported the crown and those who didn't, or in the Civil War between the North and the South, maybe a little bit during the Civil Rights Movement, but it was nothing on the scale that they would have experienced here. In fact, the hatred (coughs) between Jews and Samaritans would go back hundreds of years There's a much longer backstory here, but it basically had to do with when they were taken into captivity, one group maintained their ethnic purity, did not intermarry. Another group did not. The Samaritans were produced from that southern group that did not, uh, or excuse me, the northern group that did not. And from there, this long-standing animosity existed between the two. So there was a major line that Jesus was crossing between Jews and Samaritans. In fact, one alternate translation here, 4 verse 9, actually spells it out like this. It's the NIV if you have it. It says, Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. So not only did they not get along as two people groups, Jesus specifically breaks one of the no-no rules between these groups. You know, it seems like something we just heard. Jesus never does anything by accident. But that's not all. Because Jesus also was a rabbi, and rabbis never, ever talked to women. In fact, there was a whole group called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees that when they saw a woman in public, and I'm not making this up, They would cover their eyes and bump into walls and houses and bloody themselves as they walked about. This was serious business. So here's this rabbi talking to this woman, and we find out last week this wasn't just any woman. This was a woman of very suspect character, and that we can infer from this week's text because she shows up in the middle of the day where no woman, self-respecting woman that is, would be out looking for water. But again, Jesus never does anything by accident. And part of what he's up to here is he isn't just after the heart of this woman, but he is seeking to take the gospel to this entire people group. Remember verse 4? He had to go through Samaria. And this is him bringing the good news of the kingdom to the Samaritans, 
to this woman in a way that is completely outside the box. And what it shows us is this, point three, that there is no barrier that can prevent Jesus from bringing us the love of God. Friends, this Samaritan woman was a real woman in real time and space, but it's all of us. Every one of us in here, we were the Samaritan woman. Now, was our character as impunable as hers? Maybe not. But friends, it doesn't matter how bad we are. It just matters that we were bad. And Jesus, who has no accident in his vocabulary, he had to come through where we are. He had to bring us the gospel through a neighbor, through a family member, through a faithful preacher, through a roommate. And now here we sit, redeemed, restored, being remade, because Jesus had to go through our Samaria and bring us the love of God. And I would guess that every one of us in this room would agree with that. Functionally, yes and amen to that. But another one of the schemes and the campaigns of the devil is to try to convince us that that is just not true. It's true before we meet Jesus. He comes along and he plants all kinds of stuff out there and false religions out there. And here's why you can't trust Christianity and Christians are liars and so on and so forth. To try to prevent us embracing this truth. But you know what? There is no barrier that Jesus can't supersede to bring us the love of God. And if you're here tonight and you have questions... If you have doubts, if you even have disagreements with Christianity, this is kind of church we want to honor where you're at on your journey, but we want to tell you about the love of God. We want to tell you that Jesus loved you to live for you, to die for you, to rise again, and we want you to meet him like so many of us have. And if that's where you're at tonight, then grab me after the service and let's talk about it. But let's say you've already met him and you're here. And you still feel these barriers that separate you from the love of God. Would you look at this passage with me and see that Jesus, if he can get to this Samaritan woman through all the rules and all the nonsense and all the geography, he can get to you. There is no sin that you committed this week that can separate you from the love of God. There is no question that you ask, no doubt that formed in your mind that can separate you from the love of God. This passage tells us, but let me tell you what else tells us. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever perceived barrier that you have tonight, Jesus wants to drive right over it. Jesus can drive right over it. Will you receive his love tonight? Will you receive his kiss of grace tonight? The presence of God is among us to heal and restore and to help even now. Friends, whatever it is, 
Take it to the Lord. You know, in his own way, that's exactly what Jesus was telling this woman. Look at verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her. So she asked him this question, right? What, what are you doing? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who I am? What, what is happening here? And Jesus said this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? <coughs> are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now, there's a couple things to understand here in this passage. And I'll just tell you, not all the commentators agree on this, but that's fine because we all end up in the same place. It's just a question of where we get there. Is it in this passage or chapter 7 or later in this passage? But that aside, let's go for what's being surely communicated here. She asked this question in layman's terms. Do you think that you're bigger than Jacob? Stronger than Jacob, more powerful than Jacob. And what is Jesus' answer? Yes. I can only imagine the look on her face. So this guy thinks that he is more significant than Jacob. And I don't know at that moment if she thought he was crazy or if she was intrigued or if she believed at that moment. We're not sure. But here's what we know, that Jesus is greater than Jacob and all the patriarchs, and he is the true and better Jacob. And I like what the expository commentary says here about this. He says, unlike Jacob, Jesus had not hoodwinked his father and stolen from his brother. Yet John highlights the location and mentions Jacob and jo uh, Joseph to show that the past is being reworked in the ministry of Jesus, who is fulfilling patterns and types and reversing Jacob's failures in the fulfillment of Jacob's story. Oh, friends, that's one of the headlines in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the true and better everybody. Fully God, fully man. Now, about this living water, here's where some of the confusion comes in. Clearly, they're operating on two planes here, right? Jesus is trying to say something figuratively. This woman is really concerned about how we're going to get this up here to drink it. Now, that's understandable. Somebody else, just rando, comes by and says stuff like this. You should be concerned. You probably shouldn't listen to him or drink whatever he's handing out. But this is Jesus, and so it's different. And so <clears throat> what seems to be happening here is that Jesus is communicating to her something like this. That what you really need is not simply this water, but you need divine water, <coughs> this continuous drink that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's where we end up in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And I am the one who can give it to you. Now, I don't think she got all that on the first pitch. But that's what he's saying. <clears throat> but that wasn't all that was saying. Look at this in verse 13 and following. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So again, Jesus, master teacher, object lesson. He's using this water to talk about real water. It's the same thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting there talking to people. All of a sudden, I can just imagine this. He looks over and he sees 
flowers. He looks and he sees birds. And so everybody's sitting there listening. He's just pointing and talking and using these illustrations. That's what he's doing here. He's using water to talk about real living water. And he says, if you drink this, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, again, I don't know that she laid hold of all this. I think probably not because of what we'll get into last week. Now, well, I think she eventually gets there. But at this moment, maybe not, because she's thinking he might have some kind of magic aquifer or something, some place where they can go, like you see these places, you drive out through the mountains sometimes, there's like a spigot on the side of the road. I remember I saw this one time driving through eastern Kentucky, and it freaked me out. I was like, what in the world? Somebody has made a sink out here next to the side of the road. It's because there's constantly water coming off there, and people will get it and drink it. She might have been thinking something like that. But what Jesus is saying is more like this. Two things happen when we drink the water that come from God. The first one is our thirst is completely satisfied. And the second one is our thirst is permanently satisfied. Now let's unpack that a little bit. I don't think that the Lord is saying that once we drink of him, once we drink of the water of the Holy Spirit, that we will never be spiritually thirsty again. I don't think he's saying that. I think this is more like what he's saying over in Matthew chapter 6, that there's a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, and we are filled with that. But what happens is God makes our spiritual stomach bigger, to use that metaphor, and so our capacity increases so we can never be full of Jesus because we're always growing. We can be permanently satisfied in the sense that we don't have to get saved over and over. That's a once for all. But we keep going back to the well because there is so much good water to drink. What we need, he has. And then on top of that, what's really interesting here, this phrase that is being used for welling up is rarely used of anything other but living beings. It's typically used for the movement of bodies. A great example is over in Acts chapter uh, or 3, verse 8, where the lame man is healed, and we read about him running and jumping and praising the Lord in the temple. But John takes that idea, and he applies it to what's happening in us. This divine spring is like a jumping, leaping, dancing water fountain within us. I'm assuming most of us have lived here in Nashville at least a little while, and at some point with a relative or somebody, maybe against your own will, you ended up at the Opryland Hotel. And you saw the waltzing waters. And I tell you what, I've seen them a bunch, and I love it every time. I'll just confess that. And what he's saying here is we have that kind of well that will never run dry, that is leaping and jumping just like the lame man in the temple and just like those waters that we can see at the hotel, and it will never run out and never run dry and always be there when we need it. Friends, that is powerful. And think about what it would have meant to this woman. 
Think about the detritus of her life up to this point. Again, we'll dig into this more deeply next week. But this is a woman who had multiple husbands. She was scorned by all the ladies in town, I'm sure. And here he comes along and he describes to her not just physical water, but water that could change her very life. But here's what's awesome about it. It wouldn't just change her life, it would change her eternity. And what's also interesting about this language that Jesus used here, there's not just an inwardness, there's not just an outwardness, there's also an upwardness. Because he says at the end of verse 14, the well of water springs up into what? Everlasting life. And I like what the commentator from the Preach the Word has to say about this. They said that the image has a vertical thrust as if the law of gravity was taken away so that the water springs up and it keeps going forever. It's right in line with what we see in Revelation chapter 7, 17. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So let me give you some good news tonight. Jesus offers us living water that only he can give and that will never, ever, ever run dry. Friends, where else in the world could you go to get that, I'll just tell you, there's nowhere. You can't bottle that up because it only comes from him. And again, we've talked about some of the campaigns that the, the enemy likes to run against us. Another one of his chief ones has to do with this idea. Because in so many ways, do you know what temptation really is? It is an email marketing scheme from the enemy to try to get us to drink from a well that could never truly satisfy us. That's what it is. It's a little thing in your spiritual inbox that says, hey, look over here. This has got something for you. It's a little alert that pops up that says, hey, look over here. Click here. I've been looking for you. I've been wanting to talk to you. Click here. Join me on whatever. It's walking through your daily life and finding 10,000 things to compare yourself to and find yourself lacking. It's 10 million social media posts of other people's amazing life that you look at and you don't see yours and you get discouraged. It's an entire campaign to try to lead us to other wells that ultimately cannot satisfy. And then we get this passage. We get Jesus who had to come our way to tell us this again tonight. That he alone has the living water that we need that will never run dry. I like the way that they say this in the exalting Christ commentary. Some attempt to quench their thirst through buying stuff. They hope accumulating more possessions or the right possessions will satisfy them. Whenever they go restless, they run to the store, pull out the plastic, and buy something, anything, to distract them for a little while. Others attempt to quench their thirst through food or drink. 
Whenever they begin to long for something more significant, they eat. Others try to quench their thirst in other ways. And this isn't new. This is the same way he's worked on people since the beginning. You remember that whole exchange back in the garden? What was that about? Hey, Eve, hey, Adam, come over here to this well where God's not holding out on you. Break the rules and really get the knowledge that you need. You fast forward through the Old Testament. You think about, just pick one, throw a dart. Anytime the children of Israel are wandering away, let's use Jeremiah for an example here. Listen to what happens. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned, abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, I don't know about you, but I feel that in my bones. I feel it. We know the truth. We have a personal relationship with the truth. But when the shiny, blinky thing comes along, there we go. Using our rudimentary, foolish tools to dig out other wells that leak and cannot hold water. You know, our only hope to be delivered from that is Jesus Christ. You can't quit it on your own. You can't will your way out of it. You can't self-help your way out of going to the wrong wells. The only thing we can do is go back to the right well and ask for that living water again. And you know what? When that happens, here's what doesn't happen. He doesn't shake his head and say, I wish you'd figured it out. I told you, you got the whole book. Remember the children of Israel. Just remember, he never says that to us. He welcomes us in like it's the first time we wandered off. Because that's how good he is. That's how faithful he is. But we would be wise to learn from those who've gone before. Listen to what Solomon says about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was the reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished, and boy, he had done a lot, all that I labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So friends, Let's learn from Solomon. Let's learn from the children of Israel. Let's learn from our own misadventures and the stories we hear inside this book. There is no well like Jesus. There is no other well from which we can draw eternal salvation or lasting satisfaction in this life apart from Jesus Christ. Only Jesus offers us living water that only he provides that will never run dry. Only Jesus. Let me close with this quote tonight. 
This one's also from Preach the Word. The crux of these verses is when Jesus laments to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, dot, dot, dot. Do we know Jesus? He is the Word made flesh. The only Son of the Father. The one who ascended and descended, changed water to wine, rebuilt the torn down temple, brought the new birth, the bridegroom, the man from heaven, the giver of living water, the prophet, the Messiah, the king, the Christ, the healer of the sick and the lame, the bread of life, the light of the world, the giver of sight to the blind, resurrection and the life. To know him is to live eternal life. To know him is to know that there is no one like him. No other cleansing, refreshing, sweeter than honey to the taste, purest truth to the mind, loveliest of long foresights to the eyes other than Christ. Do we know this Jesus who offers us a spring of living water welling up to eternal life? So let me apply that quote in two ways. Number one, in a saving way. Do you know him? Not in an abstract way, but in a personal way. And if you don't, tonight when the rest of us take communion, you hold off and let's see you meet Jesus. And if you do, what is the Spirit saying to you through this verse? My guess is it would be something in this constellation. There is sin that we all have to confess where we have sought water from other wells this week. And this passage has reminded us again just how good the true well is. Just how satisfying the true well is. Just how sufficient the true well is. And that he's worth all of our praise and all of our worship and all of our honor. And his barrier crossing, barrier destroying love is making its way to us right now. So let's receive it. And let's open ourselves up to the Lord. And let's see what only he can do. Lord, we thank you that any time we turn to the word, we can be both informed and transformed by the renewing of our mind and conformed to the image of Christ. And that your kindness will lead us to repentance and that your word has a renewing effect on us every time we hear it. Lord, I pray that you would drive these truths deeply into our hearts. That we would be more fully and more further convinced of the greatness of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, for those pockets of unbelief that exist within all of us, 
I pray that you would apply the salve of your word to them even now. For those temptations of thoughts that come like daggers and say, well, that might be true, but it's not true for me. Lord, may your shield of faith silence them now. Lord, our only hope to live this week with any sense of power and excellence is the radical intervention of a sovereign, loving God. And Lord, we have it. We don't have to question your character one iota because you've shown us who you are in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you had to go through Samaria that day because you had an appointment. You had an appointment with an individual and you had an appointment with a people group. And Lord, tonight you have an appointment with individuals and with refuge. Friends, let's take just a moment and sit in silence before the Lord, before we take the Lord. Lord, we are so thankful that we're not in this alone. We're in this together. And we thank you that when we take communion every week, that we're reminded that we take communion together as well. That there's a sense in which when we take the juice that represents your blood and the the bread that represents your body, Lord, you're reminding us Christians have participated in this same symbol since the beginning. And that, too, is not an accident. So, Lord, I pray that you would nourish us tonight through this symbol, that you would use the offering that we're going to take for your glory, and that you would bless the time of prayer that we're going to have, and that you would continue to speak to us even now as we confess our sins and we are reminded again of the barrier-crossing love of God. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.